I can only describe my feelings in that moment as panic and fear. You know that feeling when you you wake up and you realize the sun is a little bit too bright? And there are too many people moving around? It was one of those days. Freshman in college, and uh, I had a, I had a um, early morning class, 7.45, Tuesday and Thursday mornings, accounting of all things. <laughs> Taught by an accountant who had absolutely no teaching experience ever in his life. I can guarantee you that uh, as a student. And when I rolled over, I realized it seemed bright. It, I heard a lot more people in the hall than probably should have. And I looked at my clock and it was 8.30. Now, this is an hour and a half class, so I'm halfway through. But here's the problem. It was the day of our midterm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one second I'm out of bed, throwing on his clothes as fast as I can, run it where I lived at the school. George Fox, where I went to school, had a canyon between where I lived and the, all the academic buildings. So I had to run across this thing, up, down, up, back, over to the other side, run, race into class. And, of course, everybody's in there taking the test. The professor just shakes his head, looks at me, and says, well, do the best you can. Now, the only positive thing about that is I can tell you it really didn't affect my grade. Uh, <laughs> it, it really had no bearing on my grade at all. You know, it's not like I was getting an A, and then this really brought me down. No, it, it, not at all. After that class, everyone agreed, uh, no one more than my professor, no one wanted me to be their accountant. That was not my thing. But you know that feeling? You know that feeling when, when you, you, you wake up and, and it's not the right time, that panic that sets in? But we also know the feeling of the night before. I, I've been, uh, had experiences where I've had, you know, a six o'clock flight out of Buffalo and so uh, rather than, you know, you want to arrive there at 4.30, so instead of driving up in the middle of the morning, I go up at night, and the whole time in the hotel, I'm lying there afraid to go to sleep because afraid I'll oversleep and miss my flight. And, and you, you panic, and, you know, you set an alarm, and then you call the desk to have them call you also, and you ask somebody else, will you please call me? You know, you have all these, these systems to try to do it. And because we all, we all have moments when we need wake-up calls. And, and, and there's something about that. But here's the thing about wake-up calls. As I think about them, they're far less about, what, about ending our sleep. As they're much more about beginning our day. I mean, the reason, we want, the reason we want to get up early at a certain time, we want to make sure that we get up at this time, is because we have something important to do in the day. That's why we need wake-up calls. It's not because we're afraid we're going to sleep more than we should. It's because we have something we need to get up for. And as I pondered this day and I pondered the writings of Peter here and, and, and the stories of, of the resurrection, I'm struck by the fact that Easter is a wake-up call. It is one of those things that, that awakens us. And like a wake-up call out of our sleep, it is something that is not, not just the end of Holy Week. It's not just the end of the crucifixion and the experiences of Jesus' death. It is the beginning of everything. And for you and me, it is the beginning of life. 
It is the beginning of life with Christ. It is the beginning of experiencing what God created us to be and to experience. And Peter describes that in this first section of his first chapter of his first letter. He talks about this inheritance that we have in Jesus. That because Christ is raised, we have an inheritance in him. And he describes this inheritance as something that will come to us one day as inheritances do. Inheritance are something that we look forward to. And he says this inheritance is secure. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be corrupted. No one can can snatch it from him. It is secure totally, completely, without any reservation. It's a little hard for us to understand inheritance like that because we live in a world of things like stock markets that fluctuate. If you have an inheritance that's in the stock market, one day it can be worth a lot and the next day not so much. And it zigzags a lot. There are sometimes when on inheritances where someone can steal the inheritance. Or sometimes where people can challenge the inheritance. There's always a little bit of insecurity about whether the inheritance is going to be there when, when it's time. But Paul Peter says to us, that's not the case with the inheritance that's ours in Christ. The inheritance of Christ is secure, safe, against everything and anything. And there is absolutely nothing in all the world that can change that. And I know sometimes in our theological system, we get a little bit nervous about this whole idea about a secure inheritance. We shouldn't. We might want to, we might, we need to be careful about our own willingness to engage that inheritance. But we are never insecure about the inheritance that is ours in Christ. It is always safe. And Peter makes this, this is the foundation of what he talks about when he talks about the resurrection. Is that because Christ is raised, we have life, we have an inheritance in him. And it is secure. This isn't the first time God's talked about awakening his people. The resurrection isn't the first time. God always has been talking to his people about waking up. You know, when, he, when he brings the, the Israelites out of Egypt, he is in essence saying, wake up from, from being people who were enslaved to people who are free. And all throughout the history of his people, and in Isaiah chapter 51, he says, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You've drunk the cup of the Lord's fury, but you've drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops, but now wake up. And a few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 52, he says, wake up, wake up, O Zion. Clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your beautiful clothes, O city of Jerusalem. For unclean and godless people will enter your gates no longer. Rise from the dust, O Jerusalem. Remove the chains of slavery around your neck, O daughters of Zion. This is what God desires for us, his people. The problem we have with the inheritance is that it seems a long ways off. If someone has left you an inheritance and you can't get it until a certain time, maybe you reach a certain age or some event happens, it doesn't really feel like it has any bearing on your life in the moment because it's a long ways off. It's something that you can't really quite imagine. You can't experience it. It's just sort of out there. You know it's supposed to be coming, but it feels just so far away. 
And I think we wrestle with this, with these words of Peter and with the inheritance that's ours through the resurrected Christ because it feels so far away. He says, you will receive this inheritance on that day when Christ, who has risen, reappears. But here's the thing about what Peter says. It is not just about that day. It's about this day. It's hard to see that. It's hard to grasp that. Because we live with so much pain and difficulty and disappointment and struggle today. We don't really often feel the full measure of that inheritance. Because life becomes so complicated. And life becomes so messy. And in those moments, we begin to fall asleep. On the inheritance that's ours. I mean, it's natural. We wonder. We, we question. I mean, you would think, if you're following the one who rose from the grave, there ought to be some perks to that. Right? I mean, if you follow the one who rose from the grave, we shouldn't have to go through as much pain as other people. We shouldn't have to deal with as much disappointment. We shouldn't have to struggle like other people struggle. Is it, there should be a perk That you get from from being connected to the one who conquered the grave. And there is. It's just not how we tend to think about it. Nowhere in the scriptures are God's people promised to have an easier life. In fact, truth be told, we're actually promised that more than likely our lives will be more difficult. More people will oppose us. People who, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Life is complicated. Life is hard. But Peter's point is not, don't worry about it. His point is not, act like it doesn't matter. His point is not, all that stuff is trivial. No, his point is, because Jesus is raised, life has meaning Now, even when it's difficult, even when it's a struggle, even when it's painful and disappointing, because Christ has conquered every reason for what happens to us. And Peter says that actually for those who are in Christ, for those who are connected to the risen Christ because he has risen... God actually takes the messy, complicated, difficult struggles, the pain, the agony. He takes it and he actually can make beautiful things out of it. Just as Christ made something beautiful out of the cross when he rose from the dead. I was pondering that and it struck me that maybe it's sort of like a machine that polishes precious stones. Now you put a stone in the machine and it's rough and it's jagged and it needs work. And you put the stone in, this, in the polisher and you turn it on and it, it begins to, to bounce around in that machine until its surface is smooth and beautiful. And as we stand back and watch it, we think, no big deal, this is great. But if you were the stone, it's a big deal. If you're the stone in there getting knocked all over the place and bumped and, and, and shoved and, and scraped and pushed and pulled, you want to stop. 
And if the stone could reach its, if it had arms, it could reach out and turn off the machine, it would. And what do we do? The whole time we would say to it, but you're getting, you're becoming beautiful. You're becoming lovely. You're going to love what you look like when this is all done. But we're in the middle of it. You're like, well, you know what? Maybe I'd rather not be so beautiful. But it's only because God wants more for us than we want for ourselves. Maybe think of it this way. I had, we were talking about this in a group of people that last week. And one person, one person said to me, if I could, if, if my mindset for about life could be the same as my mindset when I was in labor, I'd be good. And they went on to talk about how, you know, before they, were, before they had their baby, they talked to everyone they could. They read books. They found everything they, they could and to try to prepare for this. And they said, when you're in labor, obviously, it is very painful. And the whole time, you're feeling the pain. But because, of you, because you know what's coming at the end, he said, she said, I just keep tell, kept telling myself, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. So I think there's something of that in what Peter is saying, and I agree. But I've also come to the conclusion that here's our problem. Is that instead of, instead of seeing what God is doing in us like we're in labor, I sometimes wonder if we see it like we're having a kidney stone. Now, I've had some kidney stones last last couple of months, and um, and it's interesting through you know through this process. And lots of you have had them. You know, we've all been sharing our stories, and some of you had a whole lot worse situations than I've had. It, it is something that bonds you with people. I've discovered. <laughs> but you, you know, I've had a number of women tell me they've had babies and they've had kidney stones, and the kidney stones are more painful. And I've said to them, well, I don't know about baby thing looks pretty painful to me. I don't, I don't know. But that's true. But here's the thing. We, the, the difference is, I mean, the pain may be the same. The difference is what you get when you're done. You know? <laughs> On one hand, you got a baby. On the other, you get a rock. <laughs> and you have to say, it's not worth a rock. It's really not worth a rock. It's not. But the baby, ah, that's a different thing. That's a totally different thing. And Peter is saying to us, look, life is hard and it's painful and it's messy. And, and, and God never promises it to be different. It wasn't any different for his son. But what he does promise is to be with us in the middle of it. He does promise to make something beautiful out of it. He does promise us that there is meaning and hope. And he says, even joy in our trials. Because Christ is risen, it changes everything. Because Christ is risen, we know there is something beyond where we are that is bigger and better and greater and more phenomenal than any of us can ever imagine. And that's the hope that is ours in Christ. He says, even when you don't see Christ, you can still love him. Even when you don't see Christ, you still trust him and you have joy in him. Why? Because we know Christ has conquered. Christ is risen. He's done everything that needs to be done. And we can trust him.
And we aren't trusting that I hope he rose from the dead. We're trusting that what we're going through has meaning and purpose because he rose from the dead. And that's the promise of the risen Christ. That when we trust in him, we are trusting in the one who gives life and meaning and purpose. The one who gives joy in the midst of great difficulty. The one who gives peace in our chaos. The one who's at work when we see him and when we don't see him. This is the resurrected Christ. When Peter gets to the end of this section, he says what you're really getting is the salvation of your souls. You're experiencing the fullness of all that God created you to experience. Body, mind, spirit, emotions, everything about us. That's our inheritance. And he gives us the ability to experience glimpses of that. He works in us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's changing us. He's making us new. And the call of the empty tomb is to believe that that's true. That when we are awakened to the resurrection, it's an awakening to life. Despite everything that's happening, it's an awakening to life. I suspect that when you were a child, and if you have children, this happens with them, that you have you had some kind of bedtime ritual. Every, it seems like every child has a bedtime ritual. Maybe it's reading a few books. Maybe it's uh, telling a story, singing a song. I, I find that, you know, with bedtime rituals, typically they're, they're centered around how can I extend this as long as possible. I mean, that was always my, my idea when I was a child. You know, one more song, one more story, one more drink of water. I find that bedtime rituals can be a really important time in the life of a parent and a child. There's something about those moments that I have found children tend to open up a little bit more. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the fear of, of going to bed and not wanting to do that. Maybe it's feeling lonely. Maybe it's just life just stopping for a few minutes and you're thinking about things. But I find in those moments, some of the best conversations you have as a parent and a child seem to take place. I was reading years ago about a father who was going through the bedtime ritual with his son. And one of their rituals was the son to pray that, that uh, age-old prayer that lots of children pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't know if that's the best way you want to send your children into bed is thinking about if I die before I wake. But nevertheless, you know how those things catch on. Well, this night the little boy was praying his, this prayer and he prayed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to t- keep. If I should wake before I die. And then he stopped. Wait. And he looked at his dad and said, I'm sorry I messed it up. I said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He started over. He did it right. And the father tucked him in and gave him a kiss and walked out of the room. And he said, I couldn't help getting that phrase out of my head. If I should wake before I die. If I should wake before I die. He said, then all of a sudden he realized, to a great extent, that is 
That's the, the essence of Easter. That, that's the word of the, op, of the empty tomb. That we would wake before we die. That we would wake up to the life that God has, has given us and offered us and created us to live. One of his books, Brendan Manning says, maybe the, the great, the real dichotomy of the church today is not between conservatives and liberals or creationists and evolutionists, but between people who are alive and people who are asleep. And it begs the question, which are we? The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Life is ours. He calls us to awake and to live the gospel. Amen.